This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. Hello and welcome to Safe Space Radio for Courageous Conversations. Today is the second in our series about the process of having difficult conversations. Last week I spoke with Tim Wilson from Seeds of Peace about their work working with teenagers from around the world in war-torn countries, helping them to build relationships of trust and respect with each other. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Laura Chasen about the Public Conversations Project. The Public Conversations Project is a group in Boston that has been working since 1989 to bring together groups that disagree on very deeply held beliefs and help them begin to have respectful dialogues with each other. Laura Chasen is a social worker and family therapist who founded the Public Conversations Project in 1989 to explore the potential of adapting methods used with families in conflict to disputes in the public arena. Since then, she and her colleagues have facilitated a number of important dialogues about politics, the Middle East, homosexuality in churches, including the inspiring one between Boston-area pro-choice and pro-life leaders. Public Conversations Project has developed a distinctive approach to transforming conflicts driven by deep differences in identity, beliefs, and values. Welcome to Safe Space, Laura. Thank you, and I'm so glad to be here. I mean, how could I resist, given your purpose? (laughs) So, Laura, what inspired you to start the Public Conversations Project? Well, you know, and sometimes I think it all just boiled down to my having become a grandmother for the first time, and um, I think that had a huge impact on my sense of the future, and made me newly concerned about signs I saw in our political culture that people were starting to polarize rather than discuss respectively. A few months after Nathan was born, I was watching a show on PBS that was supposed to be a dialogue about abortion, which degenerated into shouting, finger-pointing, character assassination. It was sponsored by the Better World Society, and I think, you know, if that's the best we can do here, our democracy's really in trouble. When you say this is a problem for our democracy, why? Why is this kind of polarizing behavior a problem? About the same time Nathan was born, I was reminded of what de Tocqueville said about what makes democracy work, that sure, the political elections and so forth are important, but that those mechanical elements need to be sustained by a civic sphere in which he called the habits of the heart that include respect for differences, coming together to to make decisions. So what I was hearing on that TV show did not jive with my understanding of what it takes to underpin an effective democracy. And I worried that if that kind of communication continued and spread, that this country would be in serious trouble. And, I, and I'm sorry to say, as you know, that's exactly what has happened since then. The most extreme example that occurs to me was the shooting of Gabby Giffords and the feeling that the public discourse had deteriorated to such a point that someone could even become the target. But what I meant by that was a Congress whose members cannot work together to make decisions for the common good that are really important. 
So I want to bring you back now to 1994, 1995, to the kind of pivotal dialogues that the Public Conversations Project helped facilitate. This is 1994 when John Salvi went to two abortion clinics and shot and killed the receptionist at both clinics and injured a number of other people. What I understand is at that point, the governor, William Weld of Massachusetts and Cardinal Law, both called on dialogue and that it was your organization, the Public Conversations Project, that rose to that mission and began facilitating a series of highly, I think, secret conversations between three leaders of both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me, was how did that idea get started, that it would be you and your group that would step up to do that? The idea began in the weeks after the shootings. We started wondering whether whether we had any responsibility to step forward. We We'd never worked with leaders before, but we had had a, a number of dialogues um, with activists on both sides of the issue, and we had credibility. We were trusted by people on both sides. And a mediator colleague, Susan Podziba, also had been wondering what the cardinal and the governor meant by what they did call common ground talks. What did they mean? Was it a dialogue or mediation? We didn't know really what they meant, and we decided ultimately we should at least step forward and see if we could learn if it would be possible to have a convening at the leadership level that could be constructive. I think we were both aware that there was a a major potential to make the situation worse, and so we went about it in a very thoughtful way and asked people if, they thought a dialogue could be useful among leaders, and if so, um, what would the purposes of that dialogue be? What would the ground rules need to be? Who should be invited? What would be the criteria? And we must have interviewed about 20 people, some in the abortion-focused networks and some um, in, like, the League of Women Voters who had broader concerns. And And it became clear that there was a consensus, yes, it could be useful. So we went ahead at that point. And what I understand is you had three members, of, you know, three pro-choice and three pro-life leaders, all women, and you met together and you asked them to agree to four meetings. That was the, that was the initial sign-up. Well, that's not what we asked them. That's all they would do. Oh, I, <laughs> <laughs> I see. So they were willing to say four, and after that, I may be out of here. <laughs> that's right. That's all they would commit to. And so um, these six women come together, and I, you know, they wrote five and a half years after this dialogue. They wrote a piece together in the Boston Globe about the experience, in which they each spoke about their fears coming in. What were you anxious of? And they each named it. But when I was reading that, I found myself thinking about you and wondering, here you are trying this experiment, afraid to make things worse. What what were the anxieties you brought into the room on that first day? Well, I was very anxious about the secret getting out and that people would somehow know that this was happening and would... It's partly like a residual anxiety, a revival of the anxiety that I think 
many people in the Boston area felt right after the shootings happened. We gave a talk at the Cambridge Forum within the month after the shootings happened, there was, and there, there were armed guards there. The talk was about abortion, and armed guards were de- deemed necessary then. And so I think part of it was just this feeling we were doing something secret. People would be very upset on both sides if they knew it was happening, and that somehow, I don't know, at least would be found out. It was hard to sort out what was paranoia and what was realistic at that moment. And, of course, most of all, I was afraid that despite our careful preparation, that something something was going to happen when the women came together that was going to make things worse. That was the biggest fear. Well, let me start with the part about the preparation. What did you do to prepare for this? After the initial interviews, uh, determined that it would dialogue would be a good idea and identified the obvious suspects who should be part of it. We went back for a second interview and invited uh, the six women to actually become part of the dialogue. We reviewed the ground rules. We reviewed the purposes, which they had seen first time around, and we asked them to commit to absolute secrecy about even the fact that the dialogues were happening, to attend all the meetings, and everybody signed it. I mean, it was a big, formal thing. And and so everybody knew exactly what was going to be expected of them and knew who else was going to be in the dialogue, and that's what I meant. And then we took all the information about their hopes and concerns, and we drafted a meeting plan that we thought would be a good start to a constructive engagement among them. Given how polarized things were, what was the first thing on the agenda? What was your first move getting everyone together that you thought would be constructive? Yeah, that's such a good question. We designed something that drew very heavily on what we had learned from other dialogues helps break the ice, helps soften the stereotypes, helps reduce the anxiety enough so people can speak effectively and actually listen to what others are saying. We started out, if memory serves here, asking them to say something about their life experience that would help others understand why they had chosen to spend so much of their time on this issue. Then we asked them what was the heart of the matter, and then we asked them the third question that we usually ask that we call the gray areas question, in which after people have spoken what's the heart of the matter for them, we ask within their overall perspective, are there areas, are there conflicts of value, are there hard cases, are there gray areas that you would be willing to mention? And and often the shift has happened in the stereotypes have softened enough that people have actually already begun to do that in the heart of the matter question. But that's the one in which the complexity and the individualization of 
the views of the people in the room that are is masked by the labels begins to surface. There's often differences within those who call themselves pro-choice and pro-life, and those begin to emerge as well. I mean, it feels like people would be voluntarily showing their soft underbelly by showing you that. Does it feel scary for people to tell you what their areas of doubt are about their own position? Well, one of the rules, ground rules we have is the past rule, that nobody has to say anything they're not fully ready to say. And I think it's a sign of what I was saying, that the space we design is experienced as safe enough so that people are willing to say. And we had never done a dialogue with a group whose coming together was catalyzed by such a violent and tragic event. And the anxiety that they had about each other was very, very high. I think most of them felt like they were sitting down with the devil. So we actually started quite lightly. We started with, you know, to to say something about what they had to set aside to be here in the afternoon. Uh, Then we asked them to say something about themselves unrelated to the issue that they would like others to know. Then we asked them about their fears in participating in these conversations. And then we asked them about their hopes. And then we talked a little bit about what dialogue was. And then we talked about stereotypes. We asked them, we did an exercise in which they talked about ways they had felt stereotyped by the people on the other side of the issue. And which among these stereotypes felt most inapplicable to them and was most personally offensive. So when I hear you say that, Laura, what I'm imagining is that the pro-choice people felt stereotyped as if they were murderers and the pro-life people felt stereotyped as if they were anti-women or sort of subservient or not feminist or something like that. Um, Not quite like that. Um, I think one of the important things that came out of the first meeting was that the pro-choice people there felt very reassured that the pro-life participants did not view them as murderers. They viewed abortion as killing, but they did not view the individuals as murderers. And the stereotypes that were mentioned were more about uh, irresponsible, self-absorbed, callous about children. I have, we had a whole list on the wall of both of them. So even in this first meeting, you were inviting them to show each other how they had been hurt by the way the dialogue had been going so far, how they had been hurt by the kinds of stereotypes that were being falsely applied to them. Yes, that's that's another way of, of, of putting it. In a way, when I think of that, it sounds like in a way you already were beginning to humanize each other. That is right, and our big our big decision was was the end. We were not sure whether or not to ask a final question about how they had been personally affected by the shootings and the surrounding events. 
we had two endings planned, one in which that was asked and one in which that was omitted. And we decided to ask it. And people by then had enough trust to talk very movingly, all of them, about where they were and how they felt and, and so forth. So the evening ended on a very powerful and intimate place. Isn't it remarkable that in one meeting you could take people who were afraid they were coming in to sit down with the devil to a place by the end of it where they were speaking so personally about each other? Well, you know, that's, that's sort of the good news, Anne, because there is such a gap between who people, who, who opponents in a polarized conversation think their enemies are, who they are, and who they actually are, that if they can become motivated to enter the same space, a safe space, and actually, and have in a situation that's structured in a way that makes their anxiety to go down and makes it possible to learn who these people really are. The gap is so huge between <laughs> the stereotype that they brought into the room and who the person is in front of them that the shift happens very fast. One of the things that you asked people to agree to, I understand, in the guidelines or the ground rules was to refrain from trying to convince the other one or trying to change their mind. Right. And I want to hear about how you decided to make that a ground rule and how hard that was for people to observe. <laughs> That's the one people find the hardest. But it's a, it's essential. And it doesn't mean we don't ask people to set aside the wish to persuade Right. Good just, luck with that. Just right. the speaking. That that ground rule is the hardest one for people to follow. And we decided to to have it because that's the one that keeps the communications from sliding into a debate about who's right. The dialogue the goal is understanding. And if you let go of that one most people will, because of the habits they've developed, will slip into debate mode. And then, you know, if I try to persuade you, what's your response? You're either going to get, you know, your verbal dukes will go up or, so it's essential. So when you talk about habits of speech and debate mode and trying to persuade, what habits are you talking about? I'm talking about the habits of speaking about divisive issues that are everywhere in the culture now. Almost any news channel you turn to, you can have a tutorial in some of them. Everything's a yes or a no. I interrupt you. I make sweeping statements. I use labels. I paint you with as black a brush as I can get my hands on at the time. I attribute motives to you. I ask if I ask questions at all, they're rhetorical ones. So let me ask you, so you, you had this ground rule. Yeah. You said you're not allowed to persuade. You can want to persuade, but you can't try to persuade. Yeah. And sure enough, what the article 
in the Globe about this, written by the six women themselves, suggested is that none of them did change their minds. If anything, their position on abortion was even was affirmed. So given that no one changed their mind, what made this process useful, since that wasn't the goal? They achieved the goals they set out for themselves. Unfortunately, they're not goals that this culture values terribly much. Their goal was to develop mutual understanding and respect. Their goal was to develop relationships based on trust and mutual understanding. Their goal was to change the way they spoke in the pub in public to reduce violence. Their goal was to have direct access to each other. Some of them had never met. They had you know, they had a hotline that may have prevented more violence. It's very hard to prove <laughs> you prevented something. But their goal was not agreement. It's hard for people to imagine what else there is besides debate. I think what's so radical about what these women did was that they were to care more deeply and more differently about the issue than they had and and that's the big word, and care and respect about each other and trust each other deeply. Yes, one of the things that I was very moved by in reading the story was about the way that they began to change the way they spoke about the other side in their mm-hmm. public discourse and their speeches, and the way that they began to represent the issue was in much less inflammatory yes. language. And so in, in so doing, I presume they contributed to a culture that was less polarized, less inflamed, and hopefully I, I, I less believe, violent. I believe they did. I mean, there's no way to prove that, but I, I believe they did. One of the big moments I do remember was after the Globe article was published, the one condition they insist there was a deal breaker with the Boston Globe was that the word common ground could not appear in the title. If the Globe insisted on that, they would not, they would have walked. Why was it important not to use that word? Well, you know, we, we learned early on that when an issue's so polarized, that no matter how, how much you say that's not what you mean, all people can imagine common ground is meeting is compromised. Laura, would you say that people came to see the good intention of e- of the other side? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And how and the integrity of the other side and the coherence of the view and of each other it and one of the things that <laughs> makes me smile was we organized a press conference for them after that article came out um, not knowing whether anybody would come or not and the place was packed and these six women sat up in front of the room together and talked about how they yes what we've just been talking about this we disagree more we care about each other etc and you could hear a pin drop in that room there were hardly any questions and those questions that were asked were genuine questions people couldn't believe 
what they were hearing and, and seeing. And that's happened every time they've spoken in public. It's like we're wired to think this can't happen. And many people who get that it is happening thank them so much for giving them hope. I do think there's a terrible level of despair about our capacity to talk in a meaningful way about things that we disagree on without hating each other. It, and it, it makes people feel so discouraged and, and just avoid doing it. Yes, and it's, it's very, it troubles me more than anything right now. If I didn't know that it was possible to change these patterns, if I didn't know that under the radar of all the screaming matches that we see in public television, that under the radar that hardly anybody knows about in the last 20 years, there has been a movement that has developed all kinds of resources so that ordinary people who are motivated can organize these kinds of conversations for themselves. Our website has a lot of materials. Most recently, there's a wonderful project called the the Living Room Conversation Project. There's the Family Dinner Project. There's lots of resources out there now. And what is your website, Laura? Why don't you give us that address? It's www.publicconversations.org. And I would also draw to your attention the website of the National Coalition for Dialogue and Deliberation. The last count I had, there were something like 57 guidebooks in there. And their website is www.ncdd.org. Excellent. So there's a counter-movement, there's a counter-cultural movement that is growing. There's transpartisan conversations happening. I read today that the, that the head of the campus gay organization and Chick-fil-A have had a private dialogue to talk about their, their differences and develop a relationship. There's No Labels has now got 50 members in Congress who have joined a problem-solving block that's pledging to talk to each other in a different way. So if I had, didn't know all this, I would be in quite a bit of despair about where, we, where we're headed as a country. Is there a story about conversations or about polarization for you as a child growing up and your family that you think informed how you understand this or what, what you brought to the table? It's a really good question. I, I think I'd never heard the word polarization until I was in my 50s, I don't think, but I didn't come from a polarized family. My family didn't talk much. The only thing I remember that may be a forerunner is I remember sitting at the dining room table with my mother on one end of the table and my father on the other end of the table and realizing there was no topic that the three of us could talk about, the things that are of interest to my mother and the way she thought about things and the sort of very rigid, somewhat puritanical view and the way what interested my father and it's a much more new agey kind of person was totally different. There was no topic we could all talk about. So there you are realizing that, that there's no conversation the three of you can have at the same time. 
that all of you would be interested in. And what was that like for you? What what was that like at a feeling level for you? Uh, it left a kind of in, internal uh, divide and sadness that I, I guess a certain sense of helplessness and that I was an outsider to both of them in some way because I wanted there to be a we. There was no we. There was no, I mean, conflict, you know, a lot of our work has been about silenced conflict as well as hot and explosive conflict. It's the same approach, really, but my family, I came from a much more of a family where all the differences and feelings about the differences were very deeply buried. It's so moving for me to hear you say this. Laura, because you've found a way for people to, to talk. You've found a way to bring these topics out of silence and to create a, a sense of we when there was only a sense of enemy. I hadn't, I hadn't made that connection until, our, until this conversation. So I thank you for that. Laura, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space. Uh, you're very welcome. I really enjoyed talking with you. This is Dr. Ann. I've been speaking with Laura Chasen, the founder of the Public Conversations Project. And if you didn't get a chance to hear this whole interview, and if you'd like to, or if you'd like to email it to a friend, if you'd like to email it to someone with whom you're having a difference, please go to our website at www.safespaceradio.com. You can sign up there to get a weekly email with a link to that week's show. You can also like us on Facebook and download us from iTunes. Coming up next is Speak Freely.